I'm Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Happy Monday. Happy Labor Day kind of dreary here in Indiana, at least at the moment. Didn't have any big plans anyways. This episode is being released a little late because I have had a couple of little minions running around my house all weekend. Minions as in grandchildren. It's a little hard to record when one of them is being quiet, the other one is not. But I love them and so let it be late. Also want to say happy birthday to my oldest daughter. She is 25 today. She has many nicknames, Pai Pai, Mojo Jojo, Mad Joe, Jojo. I like to call her Pai Pai, even though she is an adult. Her real name is Madeline. So happy birthday, Madeline. This is going to be a two-parter. because We are going to talk about Albert Fish, a.k.a. the werewolf of Wisteria. There is so much to consider when talking about Albert. And warning, this character is a bit hard to stomach. So if you are easily nauseated, this might not be the episode for you. Or you might need to hit the fast forward icon a few times now and again. In this part, we will cover Albert's life and the crimes that got him arrested. The second part, we will cover the trial and dig deeper into Albert's mind. Most true crime fans have at least heard of Albert Fish. According to Murderpedia, his characteristics are sex pervert and include cannibalism, coprophilia, urophilia, pedophilia, and masochism. Now, if you're anything like me, I had no idea what coprophilia and urophilia were. Coprophilia is an obsessive interest in feces. And urophilia, you might have guessed, is a fetish related to urine or urination. Even though these crimes occurred almost 100 years ago, they are still startling and horrific today. Albert's crimes rival that of just about any modern-day psychopath. Fish is likely America's most gruesome serial killer, who not only killed children, but ate parts of them. He claims to have killed over a hundred. He was convicted of killing just one, Grace Budd. It was that murder that would eventually earn him a ride in Old Sparky. As with most stories, we need to start at the beginning. Albert Fish was born Hamilton Howard Fish on May 19, 1870. His dad was Randall, who happened to be 75 at the time of Albert's birth. His mother was 32-year-old Helen. Albert was the baby of four living children. He liked to be called Albert, which was the name of either one of his deceased siblings or a distant relative. Reports kind of vary on that. Apparently, children at school called him Ham and Eggs, And I'll admit, I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out the fish and eggs part. I guess I see the ham from Hamilton, but eggs? And I really think I put entirely too much thought in it. Because I'm thinking fish, fish, eggs, ham and eggs. But these are poor children from the tenements in New York City. So what would they know about caviar? So maybe they just associated eggs with ham, as in the meal ham and eggs. So now that I've wasted 30 seconds or so of your life on that, we'll just suffice it to say that Hamilton wanted to be called Albert. It does seem that a lot of the members of Albert's family suffered from some form of mental illness. He had an uncle 
who had mania, and he also had a brother that was put into a state mental institution. His mother suffered from hallucinations. He had a sister that was diagnosed with the rather vague ailment of mental affliction. You will see that eventually Fish also suffers from hallucinations, though his are auditory. One of them even from religious mania, which Albert would also eventually suffer from. His father was a riverboat captain initially, but later worked as a fertilizer manufacturer. When Fish was five, his father died of a heart attack at the 6th Street Station of the Pennsylvania Railroad in Washington, D.C. Now remember, his father was 75 when Albert was born, so he was 80. His mother, Ellen, put him along with her other children into an orphanage until she could come up with a way to support them and herself. It is probably this time that Albert spent in St. John's Orphanage that helped mold him into the monster he would eventually become. He was physically abused quite frequently at the orphanage, beaten and whipped. And it was because of this abuse that he discovered that he liked having pain inflicted on him. He would actually get erections during the beatings, which then spurred other children to tease him. By the time he was 10, his mother had gotten a job. She retrieved her children from the orphanage. Unfortunately, it was a little too late for Albert, who had been forever changed by the abuse in the orphanage. At the age of 12, Albert had become friends with a telegraph boy and began a sexual relationship with him. This friend introduced Fish to the joys of drinking urine and eating feces. Young Fish would spend his weekends at public bathhouses where he would watch young boys undressed. He also liked to answer classified ads placed by women seeking men to marry, but he would answer them with obscene and graphic letters. By the time Albert turned 20, he was working as a prostitute in New York City. It was about this time that he started to rape young boys. The killings had not begun yet. As was common in those days, his mother arranged a marriage for him. And believe it or not, this marriage would eventually produce six children. In 1898, he married Anna Mary Hoffman. She was nine years younger than him. Fish is trying to live, or at least appear to live, a normal life. He got a job painting houses, but this attempt at normalcy did not stop his disturbing behaviors. He continued to molest children, mostly boys under the age of six. And at this time, he also developed a fascination with penis bisection. And how does one develop a fascination for bisecting a penis? Well, apparently Albert went with a male lover to a wax museum, and there there was a depiction of a bisected penis. He also developed an obsession with castration at the same time. He was at the time having a relationship with a mentally handicapped man, and Fish attempted to tie up and castrate this man. Well, this obviously was quite frightening, and luckily, the man escaped. In 1903, Fish was arrested for embezzlement and sent to Sing Sing Prison. While he was there, he had regular sexual relationships with other men in prison. His first mutilation happened in 1910. Fish had an ongoing sadomasochistic relationship with a young man named Thomas Kedden. Kedden was 19 at the time. Now, up until this point, this sadomasochistic relationship was mutual. But on this day, Fish takes Kedden to a farmhouse where he tortures him 
over a two-week period. At the end of the two weeks, Fish cuts off half of Kevin's penis. Fish would later say, quote, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me. Albert's original plan was to kill Kedden, cut him up, and take his body back to Fish's house. But the weather was hot, and Fish was afraid the meat would spoil. His backup plan? He treated the wound he'd created with peroxide, he wiped Vaseline on it, and covered it with a rag. He gave Cadden $10, kissed him goodbye, and away Fish went. It's not clear what became of Kedden. So 1917 rolls around and Anna Mary left Fish and her children. She went to be with a handyman named John Straub, who had once rented a room at her home with Fish. When Anna left, she took all of the home's furnishings. So Albert came home to an empty house and six children who now had only him to depend on. Weirdly, it's not long after she left that Anna returns home and begs Albert for a place to stay. Albert says that she can stay, but Straub must go. But he didn't really go. Instead, he was hiding out in the attic, and Anna had been sneaking him food. Fish catches on to this. He again tells Anna that she can stay, but Straub has to go. Instead, both Anna and Straub leave. The Fish children would later say that their mother never stepped foot in the home again. So once this marital drama is over, Fish begins to act strangely. Not that he isn't already acting strangely. He'd cut off half of a young man's penis. But supposedly he started experiencing auditory hallucinations and he started playing around with self-harm. This self-harm including pushing needles into his groin and hitting himself with a wooden paddle that he'd studded with nails. For fun, Albert would take lighter fluid, soak a wooden dowel or cotton in it, and then insert it into his anus and set it on fire. Albert would even have his children and their friends hit him with the nail-studded paddle. Sexual mutilation is already an obsession for fish, and now it seems that cannibalism is going to join the list. So as he's having these feelings, He's trying to come up with a way to quell the desire to eat human flesh. So Fish would make entire meals of raw meat and offer this as a meal to his family. Now, during this period between when his wife left and his first murder, Fish is evaluated by psychiatrists. Each time, though, he was found sane and sent back into the world. Simultaneously, Fish is stocking up on torture devices or preparation devices including a meat cleaver, a handsaw, and a butcher's knife. About 1919, Fish started to stab young men, allegedly ones that were either African-American or mentally handicapped. His reason was he didn't think these young men would be missed. He also, supposedly, paid children to help him snag other children. His plan was to torture and murder them. And in case you're wondering... I keep saying supposedly because these murders and attacks were never proven and Fish made a lot of these claims after he was arrested. There is no proof to corroborate the numbers, but Fish claimed he killed hundreds. Now I am going to switch to present tense and let's walk the halls of madness with Albert. I think it helps to drive home the horror of what he is and how he commits his crimes if we walk the path 
in real time with him. It's 1924. Fish is in full-blown psychosis. He claims that God is commanding him to torture and murder children. He believes if God wants to stop him, he will, like he stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. In July of 1924, eight-year-old Francis McDonald is playing on the front porch of his home in the Charlton Woods section of Staten Island. His mother is nearby nursing her infant daughter. She spots an elderly man, slender with gray hair and a mustache, in the middle of the street. He is clenching and unclenching his fists and muttering to himself. He tips his hat at her and goes on down the street. Later that same day, Francis is playing with four other boys, and again, there is the old man watching. A neighbor witnesses Francis going into a wooded area, and the gray-haired, what they assume is a tramp, is following behind. When Francis misses dinner, his father, who happens to be a policeman, gets a search party together to look for his son. They find Francis in the woods, not far from his home. He is hanging from a tree. He's been sexually assaulted and strangled with his own suspenders. His leg and abdomen are covered with cuts. His left hamstring is almost entirely stripped away from the bone. He's been so badly beaten and mutilated that the cops can't believe an elderly tramp could have done it. He either had help or he isn't as frail and elderly as he appears. It is this event and the witness descriptions of him as faded and gray that earn him the name the Gray Man. Also in 1924, Fish offers money to an eight-year-old girl named Beatrice Keel. The money is payment for her help to find rhubarb. This is, of course, his way of luring her away from the family farm where she appears to be playing alone. She actually starts to join him, but her mother, thank God, sees this happening and chases Albert away. Not one to be easily thwarted, Fish returns later that day tries to sleep in the barn, potentially with the idea of still abducting Beatrice. This time, he is discovered by Beatrice's father, Hans Kiel, and he is again chased away. It's possible this event happened before Francis. It's, it's hard to determine because the dates are a bit sketchy, but needless to say, it does illustrate that Albert is bound and determined to continue getting up to his bad business. Next, Albert attempts to target Cyril Quinn. This is a boy that he has already been molesting. So he offers Quinn and another boy some food in order to lure them into the house. So the boys are wrestling on the bed, waiting for their sandwiches. As little boys are prone to do, they get a little carried away and the mattress falls off the bed. What is revealed underneath are Fish's toys, if you will. The knife, the handsaw, and the cleaver. The boys, needless to say, are frightened by this, and rightly so. They get the hell out of there. Fish's attempts to kill and eat a child have failed again. On February 11, 1927, four-year-old Billy Gaffney is playing in an apartment hallway with a neighbor boy, who is three years old and also named Billy. Their 12-year-old neighbor joins them, but he is also babysitting his infant sister, and he leaves the hallway when the baby starts to cry. Just a few minutes go by, and the older boy returns to find both of the Billies gone. He tells three-year-old Billy's father that the boys are missing. Desperate to find his son, the father does a frantic search of the building and finds his three-year-old on the top floor 
and believes that the child had actually been on the roof. The father asks his son, where is Billy Gaffney? The little boy says, the boogeyman took him. So a ton of detectives come to investigate the next day, but they aren't giving a whole lot of credence to the three-year-old's eyewitness testimony. He just continues to repeat that the boogeyman took Billy Gaffney. Authorities think that little Billy has probably fallen into the canal that's a few blocks away. The canal is dredged, but there is no sign of Billy Gaffney. We will, in part two, find out what happened to Billy. This is after Fish is arrested and tells the police what he did to the boy. In time, someone does take the three-year-old Billy seriously. The reason? Because the description of the boogeyman is a thin old man with gray hair and gray mustache. This sounds an awful lot like the gray-haired tramp that they suspected murdered Francis McDonald. Let's stop for a minute and picture the tenements in New York in the late 1920s. The Oxford Dictionary defines them as a room or set of rooms forming a separate residence within a house or a block of apartments. It can also be described as a house divided into rooms and rented out as separate residences. Tenement housing was the first type of apartment building, if you will. By 1903, New York had 82,000 tenements. These 82,000 tenements housed almost 3 million lower-income people. Other than cheap rent, there really wasn't a lot of other advantages. They were incredibly small, most of them no more than two rooms. One is used as a kitchen and the other a bedroom. Some people even worked out of these small apartments, doing needlework, sewing, or rolling cigars. I will post a couple pictures on Instagram showing just how depressing this way of living really was. Might also help us to understand what is about to unfold and how eager and accepting someone might be of the opportunity to escape. It is 1928. There is an ad placed by an 18-year-old man named Edward Budd. Edward is looking for employment to help his struggling family and to help alleviate the burden on his father. Edward is a strapping young man who not only wants to help out his family, but also escape the stink of a crowded city and the awful tenement he lives in. This ad, which runs in the Sunday edition of the New York World, says, Young man, 18, wishes position in country. Then it goes on to give his name and his address. Albert Fish answers this ad by showing up at the Bud home. He gives the appearance of this kindly old man that is seeking help around his house. The poor Bud family has no idea what they are dealing with. They do not know this is a psychopathic predator. Fish gives his name as Frank Howard and claims to be a Long Island farmer. He says that he used to be an interior decorator in the city for many years, but is now retired and on a farm. He also tells Delia Bud, a very large woman and Edward's mother, that he raised his six children by himself because his wife abandoned them. Delia Bud sends her five-year-old Beatrice to fetch Edward from another apartment. The old man, Frank Howard, smiles at the little girl and gives her a nickel. Once Edward is brought back to the apartment, Frank, a.k.a. Albert Fish, is impressed at the young man's size. He offers to pay 
$15 a week for Edward's help. And he will also hire Edward's friend, Willie. This is great news to the Bud family. They have no idea that Fish's plan is to bind Edward, mutilate him, and then let him bleed to death before eating him. Fish decides that he is going to include Willie in the plan as well. Even though both of these boys are big lads, Albert believes he can overcome both of them. Fish makes arrangements with the Bud family. He says he is going to return in a week to collect Edward. When he comes back a week later to fetch Edward, he meets 10-year-old Grace, who is a beautiful child with large brown eyes and beautiful dark hair. Her skin is pale and she is striking. No doubt she is going to be beautiful someday. Immediately, Albert changes his plan because he is entranced by Grace. Now he wants her and not Edward. He devises a new plan on the spot. He gives Grace a handful of bills and says, let's see how good of a counter you are. Of course, the buds, who are very poor, are shocked to see the stack of bills. This probably cements in the bud's mind that Frank Howard is a successful farmer and that their son is very fortunate that his ad attracted Mr. Howard's attention. Grace counts the money and gives him the correct total. He gives Grace 50 cents to buy candy and then tells the family that he will be back later in the evening to collect Edward and Willie. But first, he has to attend a birthday party for his niece. He heads to the door to leave, but he turns at the last minute and offers to take Grace with him, promising to have her back by nine. We can imagine Albert putting on his best, kindly old man smile as he offers to take the little girl to a party. At first, her mother Delia isn't sold on the idea and asks Frank Howard where the niece lives. He gives them the address of an apartment on Columbus and 137th Street. Delia eventually relents when her husband convinces her to let the little girl go since she doesn't see very much in the way of good times living in the tenements. Grace Bud then leaves with Frank Howard, a.k.a. Albert, and will never return home. When their daughter doesn't return, they send Edward to make the report at a police station. Lieutenant Samuel Dribben tells the family that the address is fake and that there is no Frank Howard and no farm in Farmingdale, Long Island. The police do what they would normally do, checking out anything Frank Howard mentioned to the Buds. They sent out flyers to other police stations with Grace's picture and a description of the fictitious Mr. Howard. There are only two clues that are remotely helpful. Police are able to identify which Western Union office Frank Howard used to send his message to the Buds, plus the original handwritten one. They are also able to locate a push cart from which Howard had bought some food items that he'd given to the Buds. He claimed they'd come from his farm. Both the Western Union office and the push cart are in East Harlem, so the police focus their attentions there. Albert isn't initially a suspect. At first, the police arrest Charles Edward Pope. He is a 66-year-old superintendent that is accused by his estranged wife. He spends 108 days in jail before police decide he isn't guilty of taking grace. When an anonymous letter arrives at the Bud home, this letter arrives six years after Grace disappeared. The police receive the key they need to solve the mystery. 
In November of 1934, the letter arrives. Mrs. Budd can't read, so her son Edward, Fish's original target, has to read it to her. Now, I'm going to read a part of that letter, but warning, it's graphic and there is language. I won't read the entire letter, but know this. The beginning portions of the letter talk about a man taking a trip to China. This man gets drunk and misses the boat when it leaves. There is a famine in China at the time, and meat costs one to three dollars a pound, which was a lot back then. In fact, things are so bad that poor children under the age of 12 are being sold as food so that other people won't starve. According to what he was told, if you went into a shop and asked for meat, part of a naked boy or girl would be brought out, and you would tell them what part to cut off for you. The backside was the best part and brought the highest price. This man, who was stranded in China, was named Captain John Davis. Apparently, he grew so fond of human flesh that when he eventually got back to New York, he kidnapped two boys, ages 7 and 11. He stripped them down, burnt their clothes, and then kept them in a closet. He would torture them by spanking them to tenderize their meat. He went on to tell the author of this letter how he ate them, the 11-year-old first because he was fatter. Captain John talked so much about how he loved human meat that the author of the letter made up his mind to try it. And now this next part is the ending portion of that letter. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street. Brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick and bite and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her into small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have had I wished. She died a virgin. We know this is from Albert. The buds only know, because of who they let their daughter leave with, that the author of this letter is the old man they believe to be Frank Howard. I can't even imagine the horror the Bud family felt hearing those words, or the guilt they must have suffered knowing they had handed their little girl over to this monster. And the statement about her dying a virgin makes me sick to my very core. Some of the recounting in this letter is verified by the police. Other parts are not. The facts regarding the murder of Grace are accurate, but they can't really confirm the parts where he claims to have eaten her. What we do know is that on the way to the Buds, Albert dropped off a package with his tools. 
on his way to the train station with Grace, he does stop to get that package. He takes Grace on a train from Bronx to Worthington, and he only bought a one-way ticket for little Grace. She, of course, is thrilled with the 40-minute ride since she's only been out of the city twice. Once they get to Worthington, Fish is distracted because he is consumed with the thoughts of what he is going to do to Grace. So distracted that he leaves the package on the train. Sadly, it is Grace who reminds him to get his package. What happens once they get there is what I just read from his letter to the Buds. So this envelope that Fish used to send the letter had a small hexagon-shaped emblem on it and the letters NYPCBA. This stands for New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. An emergency meeting of the association is called. The police start looking over the membership forms of this association to see if they can find a handwriting match to the known writing of this Frank Howard. All of them pass the test, so Detective King asks the association to find out if anyone has taken stationery. A janitor will come forward and admits he took a few sheets of the stationery and a couple of envelopes. He had taken them to his boarding house at 200 East 52nd Street. He left them there when he moved out. So police go to the boarding house and talk to the landlady. She seems very shocked when given a description of Frank Howard. She says it sounds a lot like the old man who just moved out a couple of days ago. She says that tenant's name is Albert Fish. This seems like bad luck, except the landlady says to the police that Albert is waiting for a letter that is supposed to be coming from his son and that that son often sends money. She's been instructed by Albert to intercept the letter and to hold on to it and he will return to the boarding house to get it. Instead, the police have the post office intercept that letter. But as of yet, Fish has not contacted the landlady to see if it's arrived. On December 13, 1934, the landlady calls Detective King and lets him know that Albert is at the rooming house looking for his letter. When the police reach the room, Fish is sitting at the table sipping tea. When King asks him if he is Albert Fish, Albert pulls out a switchblade. Detective King promptly grabs the old man's hand and twists it, saying, I've got you now. After his arrest for murdering Grace Budd, Fish admits to a few other murders. Francis McDonald, who we talked about, he also said he'd meant to castrate the boy, but had been scared off when he heard people nearby. It was that murder that earned him one of his nicknames, the Gray Man. This was because some of McDonald's friends had seen a man that looked quote, faded and gray, nearby. Fish went on to confess to the murder of four-year-old Billy Gaffney. So do we think that Albert Fish was born to be a serial killer? Did his time in the orphanage turn him into one? The whole nature versus nurture debate. Then again, he did seem to enjoy pain when it was inflicted on him. So was he just evil at the get-go? And he did have quite a family history of mental disorders. So was it built into his very DNA? This is where we will end part one. Next week's Full Biscuit, we will go deeper into Albert's psyche and we will talk about his trial. Unfortunately, we will also find out more details about what happened to Grace and what the police found when they went to the cottage. 
We will discover what happened to Billy Gaffney as well. And as hard as it is to imagine, it is even worse than what happened to Grace because Billy isn't killed straight away like Grace was. Part two, we will also dig into what Dr. Frederick Wortham wrote in the book, The Show of Violence. These were learned from his interactions with Albert Fish while Albert was in prison. Hopefully, you're not too sickened to come back for part two. Real quick before we end, I want to recommend a couple of podcasts that I listen to, in case you don't already know about them. Um, Crime Junkie, love it. Morbid, a true crime podcast. It is true crime and comedy. It is hilarious, informative, often disturbing. These girls censor nothing. You will enjoy them. They cover everything under the sun and they do it in depth. So you need to give them a listen. And I just started an Instagram. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm going to mention it so that if you want to get on there and laugh at me, you're welcome to do so. Follow me on Twitter at Crime Biscuit, on Instagram at Crime Biscuit, Facebook, Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast, or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Here's your final crumb. I'm so beyond sickened when thinking about Albert that witty final words escape me, but I will say this. I really hope God made a special room in hell for Albert and that he is suffering in ways I don't dare say out loud. Thanks for joining me. Bye. Thank you.